Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another virtual roundtable discussion hosted by Altius Healthcare Consulting Group. Thank you, Brian, and thank you, everyone, for joining today. Uh, we are very excited to share some information with you today on you know, the long-term acute care market as well as artificial intelligence. And we have two great panelists with us to share some information. Uh, the panelists are Richard Mackey, who is the Senior Vice President of Information Technology from Intelair, and he's going to talk to us about artificial intelligence solutions that are helping both in the COVID environment as well as for some of the revenue cycle regulatory and just connection issues that are happening across the country post-COVID. And I also have Kevin Schrake. He is the CEO of Kindred Hospital of St. Louis with me. He manages a long-term acute care facility in the St. Louis market, and he's going to share some great information with us on how his facility has been managing the current situation and environment and some tips for moving forward. But before we get started with that, I just wanted to you know, share with a lot of you that have reached out. We had some great conversations with some of our clients regarding the sessions last week on pharmacy from Jim Jurgensen, as well as the session on laboratory from Donna Showers. And there have been some dialogues going back and forth between us and our clients. If you were unable to participate last week or you did not see that, please look for our roundtable four in either our YouTube channel on our client portal or the Altius Answers podcasts. Uh, both sessions shared some great information on laboratory and pharmacy, and you should definitely want to disseminate that throughout your organization. So without further ado, I'm going to talk a little bit about some areas that you know we've heard some questions on this week that will focus our conversation for today. So we've um, collected a lot of information on the continuing situation that we're seeing happening within you know, the marketplace. As all of you know, uh, March was just a brutal month for hospitals and healthcare systems across the country. Uh, we're gathering information, CMS has been releasing information, the American Hospital Association's released information. And the last numbers that I saw yesterday were that they are anticipating that the month of March overall had a negative 8% operating margin for hospitals across the country. Now, if you consider where things had been in 2019, there had been some great rebounding, some really strong projections for 2020 moving forward. This is a huge shift for all of us and we're continuing to support each of you on your budgets, as well as the changes that you need to make for your targets. Uh, right now, we are starting to see states that are beginning to release the plans to start elective surgeries and routine medical care. Depending on which state you're in will depend on what that timing looks like. Uh, we have clients that have already been given the green light to start those areas, and we have others that they've been told June at the earliest will probably be whenever they're allowed to begin the scheduling of elective surgeries again. So as those shifts start up, you know, reach out definitely and we'll work to work with you. We also have two partners of ours that will be coming on in future sessions to talk about implementation plans that you can have for your centers of excellence in orthopedics and neuro and cardiology, and also have an expert coming on to just talk about service line in general and things that you can do within your specialty markets. So as we begin with this, we know that one of your main focuses is the restoration of services and appropriate protocols. We also have clients that are on this call, as well as clients within our network that have accessed the PPP loans. And we have received some questions regarding what needs to happen with those. So many of you typically you know, are running your biweekly reports, you're using your biweekly productivity reports to determine when you should add staff, when you need to reduce staff, 
and using that sort of as your metrics on you know what your volume levels are matching your staffing to those volume demands. Well, the PPP funds really change that, but it's only for a short period of time. So for an eight-week window or you know four pay periods, if you have received the PPP funds, you now need to pretty much keep your payroll intact. It will require very strict bookkeeping. It also will require you to use the majority of the money for your payroll costs. But there are some nuances of that rule and make sure you reach out to your accounting professionals and lawyers to gather more information. But you can use the information on payroll costs as well as the continuation of group healthcare benefits under the family medical or sick leave. You can also use it for employee salaries and interest on mortgage. Uh, on the next slide, you can also see that you can use it for rent, utilities, interest on debt obligations, but 75% of it needs to be specifically assigned to your payroll. And there are two rule, rules that they'll be using to really decide, are you forgiven or do you need to pay it back? Rule number one is the average number of employees needs to stay the same. Now there, as any strong accounting rule that's issued by the federal government, there are different perspectives on this. They're unsure if it's full-time bodies or if it's just a body is a body. So you wanna keep your eye on that particular number. It's, we're not sure if it's headcount or FTE based. And the second is as more information comes up on this, they will basically be looking for an average compensation per employee that remains intact and does not reduce by more than 25%. So just for a rule of thumb and an easy calculation, and I know this number is larger than any of you are dealing with, but if your average employee compensation was $100,000 and within that eight week period, you're coming in at $76,000, that still meets the requirements of the law because you are using 75% of it for your payroll. So if you have additional questions, please reach out to your accountants or to us and we'll be happy to walk you through some strategies that you can use during that eight week period, but even more importantly, directly following. A couple other situations that have really been coming up is you know we've had questions on you know what's happening next. We know that there was 70 billion more dollars that were released right now. Uh, 20 billion of that will be building upon the general 30 billion that was there before. Uh, these are really gonna be dispersed into hospitals and areas that are hit hard by COVID-19, such as New York. So 10 billion of it goes to that. 10 billion of it is going to rural communities and critical access facilities and those that have really been hard by the elective surgeries. And there is an allocation to organizations that fall within the Indian Health Service facilities. Uh, the remaining money is going to be distributed for skilled nursing facilities and providers that are relying heavily on Medicaid. So if you fall into those buckets, make sure that you look for what funds you might be eligible for. And the rest is going to be reserved for a second hotspot funding of COVID-19 for areas that are not hotspots now, but may become hotspots in the future. We have also had some clients that have been really concerned about security issues more recently. Next slide, please. And um, with the security concern, there are situations where there's data storage issues uh, that are happening because a lot of the employees that do your billing and others have now been remote. And you're talking about what needs to happen for storing your data offline or on a different network. Uh, Richard might dive into this a little bit more in our conversation. We're also having clients be more concerned about encryption because you have providers that are working off of their cell phones, providers working off of their tablets, uh, providers that are working remotely in their home office that might be taking virtual appointments. And so with all of this, make sure that you have a plan in place for incidents response plans, 
make sure you're tracking your data, make sure you have appropriate firewalls set up and logins, and more importantly, you know, at, utilize VPNs anywhere you possibly can just to add an additional layer of security. This may include firewalls and other things that you have in place to protect your digital assets. Uh, we, as many of you have had, we've had clients that have been victims in the past of you know, hacking arrangements as far as you know, other components. And when this happens, it takes you offline for a long period of time and can be very timely and costly. So we encourage you to put the security in place on the front end and just be very diligent about following the ransomware trends and making sure right now what we have heard is that they're really going after the remote providers because they know that there might be openings there and they're also still going after the rural hospitals. So if you fall into those categories, I encourage you to really look at your security and see what steps you might need to take to put in place. And then the final update that we have is we've had clients reaching out about areas that they might not be thinking of that have opportunity one place that we would point all of you towards to really look at right now are your purchase services. This is a bucket of hospital and healthcare service cost that we don't visit often, but this is an area where you can find additional opportunities and looking at it by identifying the spend by vendor and category, really looking at your AP data files, the PO files, look at expiring contracts and any new services that you are going to bring on, see if those are things that you still need and all technology requests. And if you categorize these in a bucket, such as facilities, you can look at leases, property management, construction, utilities for air buckets of opportunity. If you're looking at food services, you might even look at your vending commission and see if you can negotiate opportunities to reduce that cost. You might look at catering and see where there are opportunities to reduce some of the costs there moving forward. And just focusing in on any retail prices, employee discounts and perks, they're definitely helpful as well. When we look at environmental services and information services, there are areas such as waste pickup that we've had clients that have been successful in negotiating reduced rates, cleaning supplies, sharps, et cetera. So anything that you can do to really focus in on reducing costs, now's the perfect opportunity to no negotiate those rates. With, with the outsourced agreements, you might be sitting in outsourced agreements that have an FTE number that no longer applies to you because you've had to further employees, you've had to reduce staff, you've had to make changes. And it might be worthy reinvestigating those contracts to even see if you can change out some of the FTE requirements for heightened um, sterilization processes. So there are opportunities that you can just look at the contract language, negotiate what you need for your hospital and put your hospital in a better position moving forward. So with that, I'm gonna you know, turn it over and welcome my first guest today, it's Kevin Schrake. And Kevin is the Chief Executive Officer for Kindred Healthcare, Kindred Hospital in St. Louis. Uh, welcome, Kevin. Thank you, Stephanie, and I'm really pleased to be a part of the panel today and honored to be a part of the panel because I know of the quality of the services that you provide and the value that your company adds to your clients. And an example of the slides that you just shared is a perfect example of that. So thank you for allowing me to be part of this today. If you don't mind, I'll provide a little bit of a background on what I've done in my career at the tone. That'd be for a great place to start, Kevin. I appreciate that. And just as background to everyone, uh, Kevin has been the CEO at an LTAC right now, but he's also been a CEO at several other facilities in his career. And he's gonna provide a little bit of knowledge on what they've done in response to the pandemic, and then just talk about things he's thinking about moving forward. 
So you can take it away, Kevin. Yeah, thank, thank you. Uh, I'm actually a registered respiratory therapist by background. So if you take my uh, career and kind of roll it up in a big ball, I'm kind of in a perfect storm position to be part of this crisis right now. Respiratory therapist turned hospital CEO, experience in big short-term acute care hospitals as big as 900 beds, and now leading a long-term acute care hospital. So I've kind of got the whole gamut of what's involved in this crisis right now. And so I, I thought I might begin just by sharing with the audience what a long-term acute care hospital is, because a lot of times there's misconceptions. It's not a nursing home. It's not a skilled nursing facility. It's not a outpatient rehab facility. It is a hospital, an acute care hospital. The difference is that we don't have an ER and we don't have an OR, but we have most of everything in between. And what we're doing traditionally is supporting those larger hospitals that have patients that still require acute care, but no, don't need to be sitting in their intensive care units. And, and those are long-term ventilator patients, wound care management, long-term IV antibiotic therapy, renal dialysis. Those are the kind of things that generally bring people to us with a average length of stay of about 29 to 30 days. And so our role of what we've provided before the crisis and really what we're providing now during the crisis largely hasn't changed a lot because we can be selective of filling the gaps and decompressing some of the pressures that are on our referring hospitals. So what we've initially focused on is not becoming COVID-19 hospitals, but to leave those patients in the larger facilities where they have a higher amount of resources and personnel and emergency scenarios and operating rooms to be able to care for those patients, but to open up beds, virtual beds for them by taking those other patients out of their ICUs, long-term ventilator care, wound care, et cetera, the ones that I just mentioned. Now that we're sort of getting towards a little bit farther down the line of this curve though, we're gonna be providing a, another important aspect on the back end, which is caring for the recovering COVID-19 patients. And so that's what we're spending a lot of time on preparing right now is having all the right protocols in place to make sure that we can safely transfer those patients to our facility, keep our staff safe, and provide the care that will support our referring hospitals. So I'm gonna stop there for a minute, Stephanie, uh, just having set that background of what an LTAC is and in general, how we're supporting and, um, and perhaps get a response from you or, and, uh, and then I'll move on. I think that's great information, Kevin, and good perspective. You know, Thank you for sharing information on your current situation as well as providing a little bit more detail with the audience about you know, exactly what an LTAC's purpose is. And I apologize, you know, working from home, you uh, can't control your pets sometimes. Uh, but 
you know, if you can talk a little bit about some of the unique situations you've had at your facility right now, I know that you've done some unique things to really help your patients and their families during this time period to make them feel more at home as we're all, you know, going through a unique period of time. You know, I know myself, my mother has been in the hospital now for approximately two weeks. And it's just unique because for the first time ever, I'm not able to actually see her. You know, I can't hug her. I can't you know, go to spend time with her. So all I can do is entrust that her care is great. And I know she's been provided great care, but I know you've done some unique things for your family and taken some steps there as well during this unique time. So I'm sure our audience would love to hear about that. Yeah, that's a, a great topic to move into because I'm gonna say one of the major things that I have been having to do as a CEO is to manage the emotions of the family members that are supporting their loved ones and also to manage the pretty fragile emotions of our staff. So let's start with the visitors first. Uh, just as you mentioned, imagine anyone that's in the audience here having a loved one in a hospital and you can't go see them. Uh, that's an that's a incredibly uh, <laughs> you know, major emotional issue. And so we've done a couple of things. We've, as we've admitted patients, we've made sure that those family members could come with them and sort of be in the, the lobby and sort of see that they're coming into our facility and that they're going up and being cared for by people who are gonna treat their loved ones like their own. And it gives them a little bit of peace of mind of just kind of making that initial transfer, number one. Number two is that our health system, Kindred Health System, feels very uh, much uh, a, a commitment to not only taking care of the medical needs of a patient, but the heart and the emotions and the family members that go with it. And so we have employed a full-time patient representative who has a degree in sociology and psychology who does nothing but visit the patients and deal with their emotional uh, needs and wants and to interact with those family members uh, in a way right now that we're having to use a lot of technology. So we have a couple of dedicated iPads that we provide uh, FaceTime uh, video conferencing back and forth between the patients and their loved ones. That's been a major, major plus and been very well received. The um, the, the second thing that we've done is just periodically give those family members an update and a report without them having to call and ask. You know, um, just a series of phone calls from our staff that says, we checked on your dad today. He's still on the ventilator, but he's coming off the ventilator a couple of hours a day. And we're trying to gradually wean him off of that process. And that's what we're working on. And having that peace of mind and hearing those things and those areas of progress when you're sitting at home is a big deal. So we've done a lot on the family side, but we've also had to do an awful lot on the staff side, uh, Stephanie. Uh, if you can imagine the, the emotions of people you know, going home and watching the news every night and all of the reporting that scares the dickens out of us when we do that is, um, you know, they're going into buildings and being asked to do things now and being asked to go to work where everybody else is uh, going home. And, uh, you know, all, if all things were equal, uh, I'd rather be home, uh, you know, working from home 
playing Legos with my grandson and doing what I'm doing. But uh, we're all dedicated to the fact that we got into healthcare for this reason, and that's why we're here. And so we've, we've had to constantly reassure our staff that they're safe. We've got plenty of pr protective gear, and here's our inventory, and here's what we're doing to secure that and make sure that you're going to be safe moving forward. Here are all the CDC guidelines that we're adhering very closely to to make sure that we're providing the right guidelines and safety for your own personal safety. And then gradually um, moving through this curve to say, at least on the front end, we're not going to take active COVID patients, but we are going to take recovering COVID patients. And here's the transition that we're going to make. And try not to be concerned about that because here's the safety mechanisms that we have in place to make that happen. And then I'm going to mention uh, one last thing in terms of our staff psyche is that it's been very important to try to create some diversions uh, to, for a few minutes of, out of your day or even just a moment out of your day. Think about something besides what we're having to go through. And so in St. Louis, with the St. Louis Cardinals being a major port, portion of our community, they couldn't have their own opening day. So we had a virtual St. Louis Cardinals opening day at our facility. And we allowed people to uh, wear some of their favorite Cardinal gear. We brought in ballpark food for lunch. We had Cardinal trivia and games that people participated in. And we even had a short little vignette out on our front lawn where we positioned people on a baseball diamond with, of course, the appropriate uh, uh, social distancing in play. And uh, those are the kind of uh, little silly diversions that we've done just to give people an opportunity to feel like, you know, they've got a little piece of their life that's normal in the midst of all of this chaos. Kevin, I love the fact that you had the virtual opening day for the St. Louis Cardinals. You know, any little bit of normalcy that we can provide to our staff, to our patients right now is extremely important. So I think that's a great idea. And I know that you've been working on a lot of coordination efforts and some other components. You know, is there anything that you feel that is happening currently that you can share with the audience around some of those coordination efforts or even, you know, what you think is going to be extremely important? You know, you mentioned you're starting to move into providing for recovery patients. But, you know, what are you really thinking about on the back end of this? You know, what do you need to be prepared for as an executive? Yeah, well, I'm going to mention on the front end, one of the things that we did initially is I, I made a contact with every CEO of the referring hospitals in our region. And I said, we have to all be together on this. We're going to be stronger if we're together and we will get through to the other side of this and we'll all be stronger for it. And so I shared with them what we were willing to do to kind of decompress and make um, virtual beds for them. So that was like the front, the front end. Uh, now, um, well, there's some other efforts going on. There's a consolidation of our equipment and supplies that are being tracked and a spirit of cooperation between competing health systems that you wouldn't normally have. And frankly, I hope that that spirit of cooperation goes beyond the crisis of the virus because sure, we're all going to compete with each other, but 
we can be friendly competitors and support each other for the common good of what we're providing to the community and those that we serve. So we're looking at consolidating and keeping track of supplies, ventilators, uh, other permanent equipment that is needed, and also just the ability to transfer employees back and forth between organizations if that would become a necessary. So here's a, here's a couple of things that's been a little bit of a surprise in some areas of the country. And I'm gonna speak specifically about St. Louis. Because all of the elective procedures were canceled, the, the capacity in, in those hospitals right now is about half of what it normally is. You know, we've got one major um, health system, a 1200 bed health system that we sit virtually on their campus that normally would have a census of 1100 patients and they have 600 right now. And so it's, uh, so as you mentioned in your opening slides, the hospitals are really feeling the pressure, the economic pressure of having canceled all those elective procedures and then the increased cost of caring for the higher cost, you know, virus patients. And so um, I think those uh, cooperative efforts are critical. And I've even seen evidence on the news and through the normal internet wires, LinkedIn and other mechanisms where, you know, four CEOs of our four major health systems in St. Louis have put together a little infomercial and are doing it together. And the, so in some ways, the crisis has brought us together in ways that I think is going to be good in the long run for the community, and I hope that it, I, ho I hope that it moves uh, farther than the crisis. You know, I would agree that this is bringing communities together in ways that we really have not seen in the past. Uh, we've had some interesting interactions in Pittsburgh between food banks and hospitals, and just general uh, coming together of providing resources and working. So I think what you're doing in St. Louis is remarkable. And you know, really appreciate all the information that you're sharing. Any lasting words that you would have for the participants, and you know, other advice or things that you'd like to share before we move on to the next topic? Well, I think the general advice I have is that we have to get through this crisis together, and there has to be a spirit of cooperation. We have to provide some sort of normalcy to our our lives as best we can to keep our psyche and emotions. We need to keep uh, track of our own personal health and making sure that we get some exercise and eat properly and you know get plenty of rest and so that we can be the best uh, that we can be to take care of the patients and family members that we're serving and I think that's an important aspect and then just know that as bad as this situation is and it is certainly bad that there will be another uh, another side of this and if we manage it the way that i think that the united states of america has shown that they can rally and manage through crisis that we'll we'll be fine and uh, we'll be stronger as a result and so i'm looking forward to those better more normal days yeah i really appreciate that point you know one of the things that we're really focusing on our conversations with our clients on kevin is the fact that you can emerge from this stronger than you went in, in a lot of different ways. Even from a perspective of planning and preparation, you know, there are steps that you can take so the next time your community is in a similar situation, you can ensure that you have better resources in place. 
You can also, as you mentioned, make sure that you're providing appropriate wellness for your staff. And that goes from everything from appropriate nutrition and sleep and providing you know, the time off that individuals need and just provide that emotional support that they need to be able to provide the care for the patients and normalcy. You know, we all need to understand, you know, what this does within our lives and making sure that we're all prepared to care for the patients in the future. But if we don't take care of ourselves first and we don't care, take care of our employees first, we're not going to be able to prepare and take care of the patients that we're serving. So making sure that we're all exercising, staying healthy, getting enough rest, uh, spending time with our family, spending time with our friends, you know, as, as much as we can, you know, virtually and through other means, I think is really important right now. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining today. If anyone has any questions that you'd like to ask, ask from a long-term care perspective and or from you know, a more nursing home and recovery perspective or just in general, uh, please either feel free to reach out to Kevin and or toss your question in the chat and we'll get to it as soon as we talk through Richard Mackey's perspective. So next we're gonna talk about artificial intelligence. This has been a topic that has come up often with our clients more recently. Uh, Richard was on our Altius Answers podcast a few weeks ago. He was actually, I think, episode number two, and he spoke in depth about some of the opportunities to really deploy artificial intelligence and chatbots and other pieces in everything from scheduling and primary care to you know, revenue cycle registration. And we invited Richard to come back on the roundtable because we've had some clients reach out to us. Uh, looking for more information and we thought it'd be interesting to hear his perspective on AI applications for the COVID pandemic, but also what's really hot right now? What is he hearing from you know clients? So we're excited right now. And Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Stephanie. It's great uh, to be able to be here. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, I'll just speak a little bit as a way of introduction for those that may not be as familiar with uh, Intelier and then also with some of the work that we've been doing in the areas that you've just talked about. Uh, for those that uh, don't know, Indelier is an organization happens to be, I was sharing with Kevin, we happen to be headquartered in, in St. Louis, for those of you that don't know. We are an organization that it delivers solutions to help improve financial, operational, and clinical health for our partners. We have uh, a significant investment in technology offerings, and we uh, spend a good bit of time looking at tools like uh, intelligent automation, process automation, uh, deploying uh, machine learning and capabilities with uh, tools and platforms like chatbots that we use both internally and work with uh, clients and members to help uh, drive those uh, solutions in their own practices that Stephanie talked a bit about. We also historically have been and, and are uh, today a, a large uh, national group purchasing organization. So we work with uh, members and clients to be able to leverage our contract portfolio, the, the products and services that are uh, so important at this time uh, more than any. I was talking with Stephanie that we've probably heard the words healthcare supply chain more in the last 30 days than we have in my whole career. Uh, by way of background for myself, uh, for those of you that I don't know personally, my uh, focus or my background is on the non-clinical side. So I've always been in either supply chain roles or in technology IT roles. And a lot of what we're doing when we talk about helping members and clients uh, elevate their financial or operational or clinical capabilities is in being able to take those technology solutions and allow them to do their work so that uh, the, the people in the organizations, the folks that have uh, clinical 
clinical requirements, clinical uh, objectives, that they're able to do uh, to do that work in the in the most complete way possible and in, in the optimal way possible for the care uh, of the patient. Obviously, so uh, a lot of what we've been uh, doing lately related to uh, the current COVID crisis has been to help uh, partner with uh, organizations, both federal, national, as well as uh, others in the industry. As you know, Kevin talked about, this is an opportunity for folks to come together and work toward a common goal that sometimes uh, you know, other members in the industry ecosystem, wholesalers, distributors, manufacturers, other uh, group purchasing organizations, everybody coming together to try to uh, share information to help uh, work with national uh, organizations, national authorities to make sure that the right product can be at the right place at the right time. And uh, information and technology and data is a big part uh, of those efforts. And I think that, you know, as you know, you talk through things, we've heard a lot more applications right now, Richard, of, you know, right, right equipment, right place, right time. So I think that's important from a perspective of the supply chain. As you mentioned, supply chain is a hotter topic today than it probably ever has been in hospitals and healthcare systems. And all, all of a sudden, the supply chain is really an important department where maybe it's been overlooked in the past. And we're starting to see a lot more relationships coming through, uh, a lot more entities entering the market of providing equipment. So I think what you mentioned about the coordination of efforts and really keeping your pulse on what equipment is available and where it's available and how you can get it to your hospital is important. Along those lines, you know, what have you really been seeing from a technology perspective you know, within the COVID pandemic? I know it's probably switched on a few areas within your work that weren't there before. So can you talk a little bit about some of the hot button topics that you've seen lately as it relates to COVID-19 and an information technology, AI, you know, robotic system process. Uh, sure, yeah. Yeah, happy happy to. Uh, one, you know, one thing I'd say before I uh, talk more about the technology pieces, we do a, a quick plug maybe for our uh, Inalier site at uh, Inalier.com. We have a, a resources section where we have invested a lot of effort to provide uh, information and best practices to members and non-members alike uh, that can be of use. And so we're you know constantly looking to bring people together and share information in forums like this, but on topics like uh, pharmacy or other uh, areas of uh, focus, uh, nutrition, you know, everything is, is affected and impacted by what's going on. And there's a lot of effort to bring more information out to folks to help uh, help help them at, at this time. In particular, to your question, Stephanie, about the technology pieces, we've been doing work with uh, automation and uh, robotic process automation, intelligent uh, automation, and we've seen uh, significant and several examples of areas where providers have expressed interest or are looking at uh, funding certain projects to help them either directly or maybe more often indirectly uh, help them manage the impacts of, of what they're going through. Obviously, folks, uh, providers today are more uh, directly focused on providing uh, care for for patients. And as they do that, in some instances, in many parts of the country where these hotspots have emerged, it's taxing resources of, of provider organizations. It's depleting supply chains. And, and sometimes, as we talked about, straining the, uh, the time that the clinicians have uh, to be able to uh, provide that care. So uh, many of our solutions or many of the areas that we're working with folks is to help them be able to uh, free up the clinicians to 
be able to put that care back uh, to the patient or to be able to handle the bandwidth. So just with the amount of process that's happening right now, there are uh, there's a strain on uh, even on the non-clinical side around revenue cycle you mentioned earlier. So as new uh, codes, CPT codes or HICPICS codes emerge related to COVID-19, there are new, uh, maybe not new processes, but there's new information that's being put into uh, the system that in the absence of that, or just when we're going to train uh, large numbers of administrative staff on new codes or new information, it's easy for humans, for us all to make mistakes from time to time, especially when we have a high volume, uh, a high volume of, of, of information coming at us or coming through our cycle. So that can lead to errors, can lead to denied claims, uh, have uh, strain on, on staffing cycles. So we find that a lot of interest in this uh, automation category, uh, in particular intelligent automation, is in, this, in the area of, of revenue cycle, being able to uh, help the provider groups be able to uh, get, in, get claims and uh, submitted claims in more quickly at a higher volume. And then also to be able to help in the, in the instances or the cases where claims may be denied, be able to help manage uh, those denied claims as well. And so there are examples of, of when our bots, when we talk about those bots, we're really talking about pieces of, of software that help to automate and work within your existing environment. So they'll be working with your uh, patient, uh, your electronic health record system. They'll be working with your uh, billing system. They work with third-party uh, uh, you know, claims processing sites. So to be able to submit that claim and then to be able to uh, process it on the back end. If you already have a revenue cycle system or application in place, these bots can also integrate with those systems that uh, given how quickly this has emerged, one of the advantage of, of uh, this form of uh, automation is that we can deploy these projects in weeks. So uh, within a couple of weeks, we can have a new bot up and running in an environment. Uh, often our projects are, are four to five weeks, never longer than five or six weeks. And so in just a matter of, of several weeks, we can have something live and, and running in an environment that can provide real relief and it can leverage and work with the existing infrastructure that that provider already has in place. So it's not a, a you know, sometimes when we talk about artificial intelligence or more sophisticated, newer technology solutions and, you know, automation at its core is just helping to kind of connect these systems. A lot of what we spend time on is educating and informing people that these solutions are not just for the Fortune 500 companies of the world. Therefore, uh, you talked about community-based hospitals, rural hospitals, therefore uh, all of us uh, to be able to leverage. They're very much within reach and affordable, and the time to implement some of these solutions is really appropriate or not as long as you might think. It's very appropriate for this situation that we find ourselves in where we need to react quickly to what's going on in, in the world now. I think that's great information. You know, one of the areas that we've had some clients, you know, really start focusing in on is the insurance verification component. And we've talked before about the fact that, you know, insurance verification a lot of times can have an individual that spends the majority of their time on the phone just waiting for responses back from the providers and from the third parties to get approval on various, you know, procedures or, you know, pay codes. And one of the great things I think about the bots and the AI component of this is you can automate some of that. And, you know, that's one of the things that we've had some clients that have expressed interest in. So you can, can you talk about the insurance verification piece for just a minute? Sure, sure. So on the, you know, this is one example that we like to share with folks because no matter what your 
uh, line of uh, work is on the healthcare space or class of trade, ultimately, most often, many of us are at some point looking to do that uh, verification. So this is a scenario or an example that helps people to understand how these tools come together and work with existing systems to make that happen. In this example, a, a, a patient or a member of the family presents uh, the uh, insurance or the the card, and uh, one of the one one example of how these bots can be configured or deployed can then scan that card using a camera, even something as simple as your uh, mobile phone or a camera with the with your uh, network with your system, can then register, recognize the the organization that's involved, go to that site with your um, with your electronic health records uh, system, gather the right information so it can look up the the name of that. Uh, patient, it can verify and validate that they are in fact covered and what um, plan and what benefits are covered. Bring that information back and depending on how you choose to recognize or record that information, it can load it into your billing systems, it can load it into your ERP or into your uh, electronic health record systems, depending on, again, on how you've chosen to manage uh, your business. And then it can, uh, at the time that you're ready to present that claim or to file uh, that information, it can work with uh, the earlier benefits uh, uh, information uh, to, to make that happen. So it's a good example of no matter what kind of medical record system you have, no matter what kind of billing systems you're working with, these bots can be configured to share information. They can work in a variety of ways. And so rather than have multiple people in your organization that are constantly going to other websites or keying in information manually from cards and being on the phone, there are ways that we can very quickly, without a lot of investment, be able to make that uh, reasonable so that higher volumes, that whether they're re it's related to the current crisis or not, higher volumes can scale and not require us to have to hire more folks to manage that activity and not have to uh, suffer through the inconsistencies or the errors that folks make when different people are trained in different ways or they're they're working you know longer hours and may just be having an off day. So those are just a couple of examples uh, based on that specific uh, scenario that you shared there, Stephanie. Thank you, Richard. And another thing that we've had some interest in and that I've noticed is there seems to be a lot more activity around bots and recording, you know, possibly individuals that might be exhibiting symptoms, whether it's through text message and reminders you have an appointment coming in and you know, you're scheduled tomorrow at this time, and are you showing any of these symptoms? And I've noticed that they're walking the patients through yes, no questions on these symptoms just to decide, do they show any symptoms of COVID-19? Are they experiencing any issues someone needs to be aware of? And then before confirming the actual appointment. And I also have some clients have been talking about using some AI to help them schedule during the recovery phase to kind of prioritize patients that are low risk versus high risk and that should be able to move up in the queue as far as you know, the procedures being done, who should be uh, scheduled first, who should be scheduled last, and how do you prioritize all of that? So I think there's a great market for some of these bots, and we've joked a lot about the fact that everyone needs a bot uh, to support you to maybe a couple bots right now. Can you talk about some of the way that you're you know, really seeing these applications moving us into more of a public health spectrum over the next year or two? I think there's some opportunity for you know the trace contact tracing and some of the components there. So what role is AI going to play in our practices, our recovery, and our scheduling of all of this? 
Yeah, that's a great, uh, great question. So uh, there are many providers investing and in, in public health authorities investing in different kinds of uh, solutions, AI-based and driven solutions that will help in this current crisis, uh, look at early detection, look at uh, containment. Uh, you talked about kind of triage and diagnosis, and we can go a little bit uh, deeper on, on that area that, you know, they're, they're looking at um, healthcare operations in general. And in that area of uh, maybe triage or diagnosis, a lot of, uh, a lot of providers uh, have rolled out uh, tools and solutions that operate as almost like chatbots, but they're helping to, based on the interaction with the user or the patient, they're helping to assess uh, not, maybe not so much the, the person's uh, condition, but they're helping based on a series of, of questions and triage, be able to point that person in the right direction. I think that's one piece that I, I'd like to you know, share with folks that oftentimes we're, we're just helping to try to funnel activity and manage behavior based on uh, the known, you know, the known kind of uh, questions or the known, you know, based on the, the, the conditions that are presenting to that patient, let's say, they're helping that provider then direct that patient in within the region to the right channel, the right kind of, uh, you know, clinic or other uh, facilities that have been stood up uh, and, and, and that exist. So in this case, when we talk about chatbots, chatbots, so many of us use these in our personal lives, consumer, you joke about having administrative support for our bots, and that's real. I, you know, I, I think we've all, we've all thought about that now, now that we're more online and doing things digitally as a result of this crisis working from home. I know I could give you two or three examples, but I'll save that for another, another day. But in, in this case specifically, we see providers helping patients to be able to triage and, uh, and direct them to receive care in a certain channel. It could be via telemedicine uh, as an example of something that's much more prominent now than what it was uh, four or six weeks ago. And the forms of AI that come into play for these chatbots are really to support this natural language processing so that people can interact with these tools in a way that feels very comfortable and natural for them. And I think that's the real key. We've all experienced some of these bots that are very basic and they can be more frustrating. But with advances in technology and the way that we are using machine learning in these tools to help the tools recognize what it is you're trying to get at, what you're after, based on the way that you're asking these questions. We actually have uh, folks that interact with these, these chatbots and these tools and they help to train them so that the tool, so that the bot itself can recognize the goal of what uh, you know the, the patient or the person's interaction is. And so in its simplest form, we see a lot of providers using these types of chatbots to have more natural language interaction with uh, systems either online through typing or even uh, audio-based through phone calls and, and, a, and a phone, you know, a, a teleconference type uh, scenario and be able to provide information, set appointments with folks. So another kind of bot feature function is to be able to establish clinic appointments or telemedicine appointments based on uh, what, what, that, what that patient was seeking. And so that's been a big part, you know, in our case, We've been using chatbots and developing those. And I would just refer back to my earlier point. This is not something that requires uh, armies of PhDs with data science degrees to be able to configure. There are a lot of plat cloud-based platforms, whether it be Amazon or Microsoft with Azure or other providers that have helped to uh, make this uh, technology much more configurable and accessible 
there still is some level of effort required to customize it for your own unique region or system or, or provider. But these projects don't have to be, um, they don't have to be, um, you know, multiple months, five or six, you know, these these can be multiple weeks or just, uh, just a handful of months to be able to configure and deploy. And they can be up and running operationally in your environment that helps to reduce the cost to provide it, but they also help to handle high volume. And I think that's really what it's about. It's a patient experience so that you're able to provide insight and advice and guidance to patients each and every time, not having them wait for certain hours or not having them to wait on hold online uh, for an inordinate amount of time. And I think that's what the real benefit of some of these tools are for providers right now, you know, in the face of this uh, uh, this epidemic with high high demand. That's great information. You know, I think that the world of artificial intelligence and chatbots is only going to grow, Richard. So I really appreciate you touching upon a few of the areas that we've received uh, questions and feedback on. I think we're going to see this really become you know, the way that a lot of the public health rollouts are happening in the post pandemic world and really helping to control the traces of the disease and the recovery of the disease and rolling out which cities can open and when. And I think we are going to see this as a place where bots are helping us schedule into clinics and helping to really cue the patients in. So thank you so much for all the information. I do have a few questions from our participants and for the rest of our participants, if you have any questions that you would like to have answered regarding the long-term acute care a component as well as you know what's happening with skilled nursing facilities right now or what executives should be thinking in general please drop those in the chat box for Kevin and if any of you have specific questions on you know ways that you can use artificial intelligence at your particular organization or some things that you're thinking you know drop those in the chat box so Richard I have you know we have a lot of finance people that join our roundtables and a lot of CFOs that follow us so as you can imagine, the first question I have is going to be related to return on investment. And you mentioned that, you know, that this isn't a high cost perspective when you're looking at chatbots. And a lot of smaller hospitals may have felt this was outside of their price range. But the question is, if you were to deploy a you know, bot or put in place artificial intelligence for either insurance verification or revenue cycle or anything in general, What's the typical length of time that it takes before you start to get back your return on investment? And I know it probably varies, so it's a really difficult question. But again, we have a lot of CFOs and finance people, and they're all worried about the numbers. No, sure. It's uh, completely understandable. When we talk about projects like this, keep in mind, again, that we're leveraging your existing investments. So we're not trying to put in new, uh, new, new whole-scale new systems. We're trying to connect together the existing systems that you have. And oftentimes we're integrating information from external third-party sites, whether it's claims processing or in the case of suppliers, being able to uh, handle ordering or information related to transactions. A typical ROI for us looks something like, as I mentioned earlier, a, a project engagement that might be somewhere around five to six weeks. That's a that's a very typical project. We We don't, we haven't run projects when it comes to automation. We haven't run projects that take you know, more than two months. And, and really we haven't had projects that we are not live in an environment within six weeks. So six weeks is the longest that we've, that we've taken. And most of that time honestly is in documentation of the existing process upfront or understand, it's a lot of understanding what we're looking to do and make it happen. The actual development time is usually only a couple of weeks. And so uh, the, the return on that investment in all cases that we've had 
so far has been within six months where you have uh, payback. And oftentimes it can be, we've had cases or, or we have partners of, you know, examples where by the time we're going live, we're, we're getting a, a payback uh, within weeks. Uh, so uh, that's not uncommon. You know, I'm not exaggerating when I make those uh, statements. And that's that's more often the, the typical experience that that one of our um, one of our clients or members, you know, has when we're working on a project together. Thank you. That's great information. I think the six month mark is, you know, a great bar to look at, you know, when you're putting in place return on investment, you know, how soon can you start to get back the money? And then keeping in mind that everything after that really becomes, you know, the multiplier on the return on investment. And anytime you're able to take a dollar and make two or make three, or as we say at Altius, make 10 with our 10 to one return on investment guarantee, then you're really starting to turn and starting to really turn around. And right now, you know, hospitals and healthcare systems are looking for everything they can possibly do to put their financial and operations in better position coming out of this. So I think any of these opportunities might be great opportunities. Kevin, I have a question for you that came in and it's going to put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, one of our listeners really liked the idea of the St. Louis, you know, home opener and what you do with your nurse, your patients whenever they're actually coming into the LTAC. And the fact that you allow the family members into the lobby to kind of see where their patients, their loved ones are going. Do you have any other ideas uh, to really build that sense of community during this time, especially since we might be in a longer recovery period than people are anticipating? Yeah, we um, believe very strongly in a series of six core values that we live out with our actions and not our words. And they're really good ones uh, that apply to any aspect of life. One specifically applies to healthcare, which is to stay focused on the patient. That's a great core value. But some of the others, Stephanie, are hard ones to argue with, uh, such as uh, do the right thing, always. It's a good one. Uh, be kinder than expected, one of my personal favorites. Uh, have fun or create fun in what you do at, at work. You know, so uh, all of those apply to any uh, person in their personal and professional life and in any industry. And so we try to communicate that to our family members. And we also do things to connect with the community to show that it, it extends beyond the four walls of our building. So we've had... Martin Luther King walks uh, this year in January. We had uh, coat and glove giveaways to people in need. We put together book bags and book supplies for kids that didn't have them. Uh, those are the kinds of things that we've done in the community to show that Kindred Hospital is a partner with them and that it goes beyond just taking care of patients. I think those are great examples and I love the, you know, book bags and, you know, supplies for kids. I know we've had some clients that have taken some leftover food from their hospitals right now because of the fact that their patient census has been down and they've actually packaged up those meals and provided those to the community as well to help with, you know, some of the students that may have had the free lunches in the past. So I think all of those examples are great ways to really link the hospital into the community and really you know, show that you're putting the patients first and the community first, and it's really about all of our outcomes. So with that, we do not have any further questions uh, from our participants today, but we really encourage everyone that if you're listening to this after the broadcast or you're listening to this on YouTube or Altius Answers, please feel free to reach out to myself, Stephanie Dorward at Altius Healthcare Consulting Group and or Richard Mackey and Kevin Schrake. 
We'd all be willing to answer any additional questions that you have, even after the you know, roundtable was posted and, uh, posted and been live. And for the rest of you, please make sure that you follow us on Altius Answers. We'll be having additional podcasts posted soon. And for everyone that's been following the roundtable series, for next week, we're going to be focusing on compliance and law issues that are coming through with COVID-19. We will actually be having a participant join us uh, that is, works for compliance within the Pittsburgh region for the VA, uh, talking about some of their strategies that they've put in place during the pandemic. And we'll be joined by some representatives from law firms that will talk about things that they're guiding their clients for. The next uh, focus will really be on finance. So we're going to talk about the financial implications and more importantly, what do you need to do from a budgeting perspective? You know, as we talked about last week, our budgets right now in the hospitals and healthcare systems that may have been running strong up through February all need to be redone. And if you're a July 1 or October 1 budget cycle, you're probably scurrying right now to really get some new projections in line. So we'll be focusing on how you can make more appropriate projections given the new normal and helping you understand what that means to you. So thank you everyone for joining today. Richard, Kevin, thank you both for being panelists. It's been a pleasure to join, uh, join you today on this conversation. Thank you, Stephanie. I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. And for everyone else, be sure to follow us on Altius Answers, and we look forward to you joining us next week. Have a great week, everyone. This virtual roundtable discussion was brought to you by Altius Healthcare Consulting Group. For more information about anything you heard on today's roundtable, or to learn about services provided to hospitals and healthcare delivery systems by Altius Healthcare Consulting Group, visit our webpage at www.altiushcg.com. To be able to get updates on future roundtable discussions, please send an email to info, that's I-N-F-O, at A-L-T-I-U-S-H-C-G.com, and let us know that you'd like to be added to our mailing list. Those on our mailing list will be the first to find out about future roundtable discussions. Thank you so much, and have a great day.